Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. Good to be in the house of the Lord. And um, we've been having a wonderful Christmas time, wonderful Christmas services. Many, many families are out of town this morning. And uh, we, we pray for happy travels. We hope you guys enjoy it. I know many of you are online this morning from all over. God bless you. And um, we hope that you have a fantastic Christmas Eve day. This is what I don't understand in America. We call it Christmas Eve, but we're in the morning. And so uh, in South Africa, you only call it Christmas Eve when it hits evening, right? <laughs> but then again, you know, meters, feet, uh, you know, <laughs> inches, centimeters, centimeters, meters, kilometers, uh, kilometers. <laughs> but anyway, we'll, uh, we'll catch on to that one day here in the West. Uh, we're going uh, gonna to pray as we get into the Word today. Lord, I thank you so much for your Word. I pray, Father God, that you open our hearts, open our minds, so that we can learn from what the Spirit has to say today through His Word, through your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we'll see that Christmas is celebrated at this season around the whole entire world. I remember in South Africa, I used to drive to college and there was this area, you know, like we have Chinatown, we have all these different kinds of uh, towns that resemble certain cultures and represented by their foods and so forth. And there's this place where uh, you find a, um, a lot of Oriental religions. And they used to have this massive sign during Christmas because they do business, most of their business during Christmas, the sign read, thank God for Jesus. <laughs> Because, because of his birth, of course, uh, their companies would make more money than any other time throughout the year. But people celebrate Christmas throughout the year. The question we want to answer today is, well, who should truly celebrate Christmas? Who should truly be thankful for, joyful during the season? And what are the reasons why we celebrate and are joyful during this time of the year? Now, T. DeWitt Tomaj, in his commentary on Hosea 13, verse 9, <clears throat> he uses this famous Leonardo da Vinci painting of the Last Supper to show the sin or the damages that sin brings to the human race. Many people believe that sin only makes them sick. Jesus came to heal them from their sickness. He came to make them better than what they were. Others, including us, we believe that sin didn't just make us sick. Sin killed us. And I wanted to show you what he showed, what he pointed out um, that took place during the painting of this very famous painting called The Lost Supper, where Leonardo da Vinci spent many, many years to paint this. Uh, you would be very familiar with it even though there are a couple of mistakes here. Of course, you see behind them, through the window, it's middle of the day. But really, this was in the evening. And then also, I believe, if you count the feet and the amount of people, they don't add up. But we're not going to worry about that. The one thing that really strikes me about Leonardo da Vinci's rendition of The Last Supper is that everybody sat on the same side of the table. Um, here in the West, we sit around a table. <laughs> it was almost like they were watching a movie. 
But from left to right, they sat in groups of three. You'll see on the far left, you'll have Bartholomew, James, and Andrew. Then the second group of three, you will find Judas, Peter, and John. The third group is Thomas, James, the Great, and Philip. And then on the far right, you have another group of three, Matthew, Jude, and Simon. Now, uh, T. DeWitt Talmaj, in his commentary, he uses this story of Leonardo da Vinci and how he painted this as an example of the, the, the power of sin in a person's life. So I wanted to read this to you because I think it's a fantastic story and um, not looked into how true it is, but the story certainly drives this point home. I want to read it to you. A quote. He says that one of the most famous pictures in the world is the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Jesus sits at the table with his 12 disciples. It is said that the artist sought long for a model that he could paint to represent our Savior. He wanted a young man of pure holy look. At length, his attention was fixed on this young chorister in the cathedral, and this young man's name was Pietro Bandanelli. This young man, Pietro Bandanelli, had a very noble face and a very devout demeanor. Leonardo used him as a model in the painting for the face of Jesus. Soon after this, Pietro Bandanelli went to Rome to study music, but there he fell amongst evil companions and was led to drink, to wild living, and all manner of debased sins. Year after year, the painter went on with his picture. All the apostles were now painted except for one, Judas the traitor. Then Leonardo da Vinci went from place to place looking for some debased man who would be suitable as a model for Judas. He was walking one day in the streets of Milan, watching the faces of evil men that he, that would capture the features and the character of a debased evil man in order to represent Judas. His eyes fell on this one who seemed to have his features that he was looking for. He was a miserable, unclean beggar, wearing rags, looking like a villain. The man said at this artist, the man said as the artist for modeling after Judas. Now after the face was painted, da Vinci learned that the man who sat for him was his old friend, Pierre Bandinelli, the very same man who sat a few years earlier on as the model for his master Jesus. Wickedness, he says, had debased the beautiful life into a hideous deformity. And so sin distorts, sin deforms, and destroys the human soul. It drags it down from its greatness until it grovels in the dust. End quote. What a great story to show how he used the same model to paint Jesus, a few years later, same man to paint Judas because of what sin did to this young man. Now we find in the book of Hosea, the prophet comes to Israel and he's prophesying, God is speaking to Israel through this prophet. And he says to Israel in chapter 13, verse 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. You destroyed you. 
but in me is thine help. Now, I want us to consider the fact that it is the Bible that is the absolute only religious writing that outlines man's ultimate problem, which is sin, but then goes beyond that and outlines God's solution to man's sin problem. There is no other writing that exclamates this. For instance, I, I remember um, them asking me to speak at a college, Trinity College, not too far from here. And the, the statement or the theme was, why are you still a Christian? Why are you still a Christian? And this was during the time that many great uh, names around the world, especially singers that were very prominent, uh, the lead vocalist uh, for, the, for the worship band at um, Hillsong, all these people were deconstructing their faith. And it shook the Christian world. And uh, they asked the question, why are you still a Christian? And my one reason, and I had many of them, but my one reason for why I am still a Christian is simply because where else would I take my guilt where, where could you take your guilt? There's no one else who has paid for your sins. There's no one else who qualified to pay for your sins. People say, well, God seems very narcissistic. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You shall have no other God but me. And I created all things for my glory. And people say, well, God seems very narcissistic, doesn't he? Or really, the opposite is true. He, as a matter of fact, gave himself wholly and completely for the benefit of those who hated him. Narcissists don't do that. <laughs> but what I want to point out is the fact that Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who qualifies to be that way. There is no other one who was sinless, completely sinless to the point that they could stand in your stead. Because think about it, if Jesus sinned, if he had any sin, he would have to go and die for his own sin. But not our Jesus, no. He didn't die for his own sin because he had none. That's why he qualified to stand in your stead and take upon himself all of your sin and not his own sin. So we realize that the Bible is the only religious writing that outlines very clearly man's ultimate problem, which is sin, and God's solution to man's problem. And with this backdrop, I would like to answer the question, well, why then should we celebrate Christmas? What is it that we're celebrating? And why is it that we can be joyful and be merry during the time of Christmas? Well, the answer lies in what the angel told Joseph when the angel visited Joseph. He says in Matthew 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
she will give birth to a son and you will give him a name, the name Jesus. Now let's pause there for a second. So the angel is telling Mary, you will name this little boy Jesus. Now, when the angel told him that, certain things had to go through his mind. The name Jesus and the name Joshua are pretty much the same name and has the same meaning, which is warrior king. Warrior king. Joshua was a warrior king. He came and he protected the children of Israel. He fought for them. The walls of Jericho came down. They beat the giants. Joshua, the warrior king, was the hero king. And here the angel saying to Joseph, name this young man, this young boy that you're, the, the lady you are betrothed to, not yet married to, she's now pregnant, it's of the Holy Spirit, name him Jesus, warrior king. Then the angel says, because. Now the angel is going to give the reason as to why his name should be Jesus. Now understand, Jesus is his name. Christ is his office. The anointed one. Warrior king, the anointed one. Call him Jesus because. And now he's going to give an answer as to reason why. But I'm sure that in Joseph's mind, he already figured this out. Name him Jesus. He's from God. The Holy Spirit caused her to be pregnant. I bet you, in Joseph's mind, he knew why this baby's name should be Jesus, Warrior King, because for hundreds of years, they have been oppressed. They needed another Joshua because at the time, they were oppressed by the Roman Empire. And I bet you, in his mind, he thought, well, you know, we've been oppressed, suppressed, enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years. We've been, we were enslaved by the Egyptians, after which we were enslaved by the Syrians. Then we went into exile uh, as we were enslaved by the Babylonians, then by the Persians, then by the Greeks, and now by the Romans. We need another Joshua from God. But the angel doesn't say that. The angel actually gives another reason as to why you need this warrior king that will fight for you. So he says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people. Not like Joshua saved them from the giants, but he will save his people from their sins. Ah, I bet you he was saying, well, I mean, I know we need saving and deliverance, but we need saving and deliverance, angel, from those people and their armies. That's who we need saving and deliverance from. And the angel says, no, he's coming to save you from your sins. You know, it's so shocking for me to hear Christians talk about in when you when you go through the internet and you search out why Jesus died for us. Christians will always say things like, so that we can escape heaven. Excuse me, hell. Thank you. <laughs> Just testing to see if you're listening. So we can escape hell. That's what Jesus came to do. 
He came so we can not have to go to hell one day. Yet the angel here says he's saving us from our sins. Do you know why not many of us are moved when we hear that God sent Jesus to save us from our sins? People aren't excited about that. People get excited about hearing, well, Jesus came to save you from sickness. Jesus came to save you from disease. Jesus came to save you from poverty. Jesus came to save you from a hard life. Jesus came to save you from one day having to go to hell. Everybody gets excited about that. The angel said, he came to save you from your sins. Well, no, I love my sins. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Don't save me from what I love. <laughs> save me from what I want. To escape, which is hell. Deliver me from the poverty that I don't want. From the pain that I don't want. He says, no, no, no. Came to save you from your sins. But I figured that the reason why many people are not moved when they hear that God came to save us from our sins is because they hear it differently. Uh, they don't hear He will save us from our sins. Instead, they hear, it, they hear that he will, he will forgive us for our sins. That's the only thing they hear. He will forgive us from our sins. So if we are not careful, we will end up celebrating Christmas as, as, as many do, which is to celebrate forgiveness for sins only instead of the salvation from it. This is why many, many Christians reduce their Christianity down to, well, nobody's perfect. Everybody sins and God always forgives. Well, I'm a sinner, I sin, God forgives, I sin, God, I mess up, God forgives. And this is the entire spiritual experience that they have in Christianity. Uh, the idea is, quote, my job is to mess up and his job is to forgive me. We both play our part. And this is what they have reduced Christianity down to. Why do you think they use the rainbow? I can live as I want to because there's no more judgment, remember? Of course, it's a misinterpretation. You see, the message the angel brought you of Joseph is that it is in, in that dream was so much bigger than I mess up and God forgives. I'm a sinner and God forgives. You see, by equating the message of Christmas to only forgiveness and not salvation from sin, but just forgiveness for it, we've actually missed the primary purpose and meaning of Christmas. Jesus did not only come to save us from the penalty of sin, which is hell, but also in separation from God, but also from the power of sin, which is the enslavement. So we are no longer a slave to what would have sent us to eternal separation from God. There's a great story in the Bible um, of this woman that was caught in the act of adultery. So I'm not going to read it because most people know it, but what happened was is these Pharisees dragged this woman threw her down in front of Jesus and said, we caught her red-handed in the act of adultery. And according to the law, she was supposed to be stoned right there. Now, of course, they were testing Jesus, right? Well, Jesus goes down to the ground and he starts writing. But before he does, he says, now stone her because that's what needs to be done. However, there's a caveat. The one that has no sin, let him stone her first. And then he goes down and he starts writing in the sand with his finger. And the Bible says as he was writing, they started leaving in order of progression. 
I'm assuming he was writing Pharisee, Pharisee Johnny three nights ago. Sarah, don't forget her. And then he went to the next one. And then he went to the next one and pointing out their sins and they left. That's just what I'm assuming. However, they all did leave. Then Jesus looks up to her and he says in John 8 verse 10 through 12, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you to death? In other words, has no one stoned you to death? No one, sir, she said. Let me read this to you out of the New King James. It says, says it better. The New King James says, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, in other words, they all left, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one. Lord, can you see that? No one. Lord. Something happened there to her. She was enslaved by her sin. Sin was her Lord. And now she says, I'm no longer, I, I'm, I, no, all my accusers are gone, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. In other words, neither will I stone you to death. And then he says this, go and sin no more. Go, be free from your inability of loving me enough to not commit adultery. Go and sin no more. In other words, love God enough to walk away from sin. Love God enough to not commit adultery, which is a reflection of a spiritual truth. You know, adultery is wrong because that doesn't reflect the relationship between Christ and His church. And if we have a right relationship with God, then it seeps into the rest of our lives. Once again, Jesus came to save us, not from the penalty only of sin, but also from the power of it. So the obvious question that we have before us then is, is it possible to go and sin no more? Is it possible for you to go and sin no more? Well, Paul gives us this charge in Romans 6 verse 12. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign. Who reigns? Kings reign. That's what a king does. A king reigns. And he's saying, like that woman who was enslaved to her sin, but then she turns to Christ and she says, Lord. In other words, now she is submitting herself to his lordship instead of the lordship of sin. And in other words, she now has a new king. And Paul tells us right here in, in Romans 6.12, Therefore, do not let sin be your king. Do not let sin reign over you in your mortal body so that you obey like a servant or like a slave would its evil desires. Sin has evil desires. Sin is a slave master. And people obey his desires, evil's desires. But when they change lordship, things change for them. So the question we're asking is, can a person go and sin no more? Let me say it this way. Don't allow yourself to stay under the authority of that slave master. You are now under the authority of a new king, 
Jesus, just like that woman. So we may say, so Paul, we have a choice not to sin. Well, yes, this is why Jesus came, to save us from our sins, the penalty of it and the power that it has over you. It is, he came because of sin. He came to undo in us what Adam's sin did in us. He came to undo that. It's a sin issue, folks. I was in the ministry for almost two decades. And I can tell you now that sin was not really a part of my understanding when it came to the gospel. I didn't understand or have a clear grasp on the fact that it was sin Jesus came for. For most part, people are taught like he came because you were so valuable. No, he didn't come to purchase your value. He came to pay the penalty for your sin. And he came to break the power of it over you. So no, not only did he come to forgive us for our sin, but he also came to save us from it. Think of this. He didn't come to save you from the temptation of sin. He didn't come to save, save you from every earthly consequence of your sin. But from the power of that sin, you are no longer a slave. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He also came to pay for the penalty of your sin, which is eternal separation from the Father. Let's just quickly look at that question that I've always had in my mind. If Jesus came to set us free, the Bible says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. What did he set us free from? What did he set you free from? Now you can go and search that out. Very few people are clear as to what he sets us free from because they know that Christians aren't completely free. But yet it says whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I would like to uh, suggest we interpret it this way. Is a blind man free to see? Is a blind man free to see? No, he cannot see because he's enslaved by his blindness. He can only do what his blindness, blindness forces him into, which is blindness. Is a deaf man free to hear? No. He's forced into living the life that deafness, that slave master, demands for him to live in. Can a man with a stony heart love? No. A stone doesn't love. The Bible says very clearly, and you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> the blind man is not free to see unless the sun sets him free from that blindness. He will be free to see indeed. The deaf man is not free to hear the call of God like the blind man isn't free to see the light of the gospel unless Jesus comes to set him free from that blindness, to set him free from that deafness. 
The man with a stony heart isn't free to love God, only hate Him, unless or until Jesus comes to set him free from that heart of stone, gives him a heart of flesh, so he's free to love. The Bible says that the fallen man's mind is at enmity with God. He's an enemy with God. His mind cannot see God as Savior or as Father. He sees him as enemy. Every unsaved man's mind works that way. It says, for the unsaved man, the unregenerate man, the, the carnal man's mind is at enmity with God, and his mind cannot, there's an inability, submit to God. So God calls him, believe, and he says, can't, not gonna, you're my enemy. Until God births this man anew, and now suddenly his mind can fathom the good news. His mind can submit to the call of God, the commandments of the gospel, which is to come, repent, and believe. So my point I'm trying to say is, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. This is why Jesus was born, to come and set you free from what? What sin has done in you? What did sin do in you? Sin hardened your heart, and it was a stone that couldn't love God. He gave you a heart of flesh. He freed you from that stone so you could love Him. He came and He opened the eyes that couldn't see the light of the gospel. He opened them and He gave them sight so they could see the the light of the gospel. They hear the gospel and they go like, it's true. I can see it. He set him free from that. Jesus was born to come and set you free and you will be free indeed when in fact he opens your ears so that you can hear God call you when the gospel is preached. And he birthed you anew so that your mind could grasp and submit to him. So here's what I want to encourage you with. Sin is not your master. What does this mean? Well, how is sin not your master? Because you still sin, right? How many of you are sinless? Quickly raise your hand. You have no sin? Because that will be your sin for today, lying, <laughs> right? Now, everybody sins. But what does it mean that sin is not your slave master? What does that mean? Well, regarding the law... I heard this fantastic example given by Doug Wilson that we are no, no longer under the law. Why not? Because we've died to ourselves and we've come alive unto God. We've died to ourselves. That's why the law no longer holds us. The example he gave was simply this, that let's say, for instance, somebody has a lifelong uh, sentence. They're in prison for the rest of their lives. Well, they fall ill. And he dies, but he has to die in prison. He's got a lifelong sentence. That man, his whole life, tried to escape prison, but he couldn't because there were guards at the gates with big guns. So he couldn't escape, but eventually he dies in prison. And what they do is they put him in a bag. They put him in one of those semi-limousines. And... They drive him to the gates and they drive him out. Nobody's shooting at that car. Trying to keep that dead man inside of a prison. Why not? He's dead. The law no longer applies to him. He's dead. If he was still alive, the law would apply to him and he would be bound to stay within that prison. 
the moment his life goes away, the law goes away, and that man is able to go through those gates as a dead man. And in the same way, how does the law, or how does sin, how is sin no longer a slave master? Well, because you are no longer under it since you died to yourself, and you are alive unto God. The law no longer rules over you. Regarding your relationship with truth, and let me just say this, I know that I can already feel many questions coming up. There are many things in the law that we now obey because we love God. It is not a ball and chain, right? I'm faithful to my wife because I love her. Marriage is not a ball and chain. And so because of our love for him, because we can now see the light of the gospel and hear the call of God and the love, we see him as father and we can love him back. We now live according to his standards and what pleases him. And that is, in fact, outlined in the law. So how is sin no longer your master? Well, you did to the law. Secondly, Regarding your relationship with truth, you were a slave to your old stony heart. You were a slave to your blindness. You were a slave to deafness. You were enslaved to your mind that was in enmity with God. But now, because Jesus was born, His work was to free you from all of that. So regarding your relationship with God, it changed because He set you free from all those things that held you brought on by sin. And then finally, regarding sanctification. Just like the woman who committed adultery, who now saw Jesus as Lord instead, of course was humbled because he didn't condemn her, was thankful because he loved her enough, she could love him back. And just like that woman who committed adultery, you now love God because he has forgiven you. He doesn't condemn you. And he has saved you from eternal separation from him. You love because you were loved. You are being sanctified because you love. You know, sanctification is the only proof that you were justified. You were saved in three tenses. You were saved, the Bible says. You are being saved and you will be saved. You were saved justified. You are being saved, sanctified. You will be saved, glorified. The only proof that you were saved is that you are being saved. In other words, the sanctification process is the only proof I have that I was saved and that I am saved. That's why Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Their sanctification becomes evidence of the fact that God has touched them. And in the same way, regarding sanctification, because we understand the love with which He loved us and the salvation of what He saved us from. We can't but live for Him. And when we do, we are sanctified over and over and over again. And as we do, we are becoming more and more and more and more like our Father in heaven. You see, the gospel is a sanctifying process. It's an amazing thing. The more I hear the gospel the more I long to live a holier life, to be more like my Father. So we see that we are not a slave. The power of sin has been broken over us. How? 
because we are not dead to ourselves and alive to him. So regarding the law, we're like that dead man that can now move out of prison. Regarding our relationship with him, we consistently grow deeper and deeper in love with him as we learn more and more as to what he's done for us. Regarding sanctification, because of this, we are becoming more and more as he is. So the question, who needs to celebrate Christmas? Who needs to celebrate Christmas? Well, everybody needs, everybody who needs to escape or who needs to be saved from the law or the, let me say this, everybody who needs to be saved from what the law demands when it's broken. I'm trying to think of how to say it clearer. Everybody that, need, everybody that has consequences, eternal consequences because of a broken law. Who needs to celebrate Christmas? Everybody who needs a new relationship with God himself. Who needs to celebrate Christmas? Everyone who needs to be transformed to become more like God. That's every one of us. Who needs to celebrate Christmas? Everyone who needs to be saved from the penalty and the power of sin. Now, these are the ones who rejoice during the season, who are grateful for all that God has done during the season. It's so interesting that um, you know where a person stands when you bring up the sin issue. You know where a person stands when you bring up the sin issue. You know those Christians when you say, when you talk about sin, they go like, I'm forgiven. Immediately they're upset about the fact that you brought up sin. <laughs> Anybody that wants a repentance without remorse, forgiveness without repentance, salvation um, without the forgiveness of sin. I mean, people just want it their way. And so it's so easy to know where somebody stands the moment you bring up sin and i can tell you now we have only one response when it comes to sin and that is the tax collector's response you have the tax collector and you're the pharisee they go to the temple the pharisee looks as he prays and he looks at the tax collector he says god thank you that i'm not like him I don't do what he does. On the contrary, I do all these wonderful things. Keeps on pounding his chest in pride. And then the tax collector, on the other hand, he goes, he starts pounding his chest and he says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. So the angel came and he said, he shall save you from your sins. That is enslavement to sin, power of sin and the eternal consequences which is separation from God let's pray father we just thank you for your word Lord that we will know as we celebrate Christmas that you came to set us free and whom the son sets free is free indeed God thank you that we are free from hardened hearts that could only resent you but not love you Thank you, God, that we are free from blind eyes that could never see the light of the gospel. Lord, thank you that we are now free from deaf ears that couldn't hear the call of God. 
we are set free from this fallen state that we were in. That you have birthed us anew. That you have given us a heart of flesh. You've given us eyes that see and ears that hear. You've given us a heart that now responds to you in love. We are free from what sin has done in us. And now God, help us be sanctified from the residue of sin. The worldliness and the temptation of the flesh. We pray, Father God, that you help us become more and more like you as we walk through this world. In Jesus' mighty name, while every head's bowed and every eye's closed, if you are here today, you're saying, Jacques, I need to make right with God. Well, this is your moment. This is your moment. It never gets easier than just this. If you are saying, Jacques, I feel like I'm standing on the outside. I'm standing on the outside looking in. You guys are talking about having this wonderful relationship with God where people are right with God. People have had their sins forgiven. I don't know where to take my sin, but I know I need to take my sin and my guilt somewhere. This is your moment. This is your moment to come to Him. Repent and believe. Turn away from thinking that you are good enough to fix your life. Turn to Him by placing your trust in Him that He will qualify you, that you do not qualify yourself. That is repentance. Turn to Him. So you might be sitting on the outside looking in saying, I need to be right with God. It is by putting your faith in Christ Jesus. That is how you are made right with God. He qualifies you. Or you might just say, Jacques, I've drifted and I've drifted. I'm so far from God. But I need to come back to Him. Well, this is your moment to run back to Him. Repent. Turn. Bow your knee to Him. And there's only really one way of doing it, and that is giving up, serving yourself. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to deny yourself. Follow me. You're going to have to deny yourself and then follow me. There is no following until there first has, become, has some denying of self. Come back to him. Say, I want to have a new relationship with you, Jesus. Well, that is by having a new relationship with his word. Because he is the word made flesh. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, either you feel like you've never really given your life to the Lord or you feel like you just drifted. If that's you, then I want to encourage you. Today is your day. This is a very special day. Mark it down. This is the day you've take, you turned a corner. This is the day you made a new decision. Amen. Now allow God to keep working in your life. Thank you.